2: Good evening. Thank you for tuning in to Exposure on WDBM Impact 89FM. I'm your host, Stephen Rich. This week, we'll be celebrating the 50th year anniversary of the MSU Abrams Planetarium, hearing about the work of the Big Brothers Big Sisters in Lansing, talking with an MSU student about his interesting hobby, and much, much more.
4: With or far, even you are.
2: Again, I am Stephen Rich, and this is Impact 89 FM. You are listening to Exposure. Have you ever wanted to sit back, relax, and contemplate existence? Well, there's no better place at MSU than the Abrams Planetarium. And this year, the facility is celebrating its 50th year anniversary. I sat down with Abrams Director Shannon Schmoll, about what she had in store this year.
0: On a day-to-day basis, it's um, about the operation. And so it's uh, we have school groups and camp groups that come through for shows. So I help with those, either with seating or I'll give shows during the week as well. Uh, if there's a lot of kids who want to buy a lot of things at the gift counter, I'm right there at the cash register helping out as well. Um, but for the most part, uh, my job and my goals are to try to reach out to other people in the campus and try to find new ways to collaborate and expand our reach and make sure that people know that we are a resource for them in terms of um, education, uh, programming, mm-hmm. things like that. So, How
2: are you guys currently collaborating, or who are you currently collaborating with?
0: So we have a, a few different collaborations. Um, the, I think the biggest one is we collaborate with health for You right now um, during the school year to uh, bring – relaxing events within the planetarium so we do relax under the stars and music under the stars as a way for people to come in during their lunch and, and just take a break from the day and and really get to get a chance to Ponder life or refresh themselves. <laughs> ponder existence. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that can be a little dangerous in the planetarium. But
2: <laughs> I wish I would have known about that. That sounds like a great way to spend um, a lunch. But just kind of looking broad at the planetarium, what do you mm-hmm. see as the major goal of the planetarium? Is it mostly education and just ma- ma- letting people be more aware of, I don't know, different stars and... <laughs>
0: So on the one hand, uh, a major goal is to just spread our appreciation and love of the night sky to everybody and support um, everyone's interest in science and support scientific literacy as much as we can. And that's sort of the overarching goal. Um, But I would say beyond that, it's definitely education. It's education for astronomy students. It's education for students who are just wanting to learn more about astronomy that might not necessarily want to become astronomers, but also going well beyond that. I want us to be a resource for uh, students who are maybe are English majors or are trying to find ways of writing and maybe they can come in and help us write scripts or label copy for exhibits I want us to be a place for maybe graphic design students to come in and help us out with our graphic design and also gain something for their portfolio that they can take with them in the future mm-hmm. so I don't want us to be limited to just astronomy I want us to be able to be a location for education for everybody who's mm-hmm. who thinks that this could be a, a potential place for them to do that
2: yeah like you said earlier a lot of collaboration and mm-hmm. so the big event that This year, is uh, you guys first opened in 1964, so this is the 50th year anniversary, which is (laughs) very exciting. Um, I understand that you're a new director, but um, do you know of any iconic moments in the last 50 years that you'd be able to talk about?
0: So, I know at one point we had Isaac Asimov come by, but that's that's all I know. (laughs) Uh, I don't know much else beyond that. Uh, But we've... I think there's some things that we've done very well and strongly over the 50 years that we've done consistently that I also want to make sure that we continue doing. So, uh, for instance, we've always given night sky talks. We've always had live components. We've had pre-recorded shows as well that have always been very engaging and, and informational. But we've always also included a live star talk where there's a person there telling you about the night sky, who can you can ask questions of and get answers to. what's this and what's that and what's a globular cluster and... Why are galaxies spirals? There's always somebody there who can help answer those questions if you have them Mm. and interact with the audience. We've also, uh, for almost the entire span of those 50 years, created a sky calendar where people can purchase a subscription. And every month they get a new calendar that tells you what's going to be up in the sky and what's interesting and exciting. And we're still doing that. And so that's something I'm very happy that we still do. And I definitely want to continue doing. Mm -hmm. So.
2: And are you guys doing any special shows or any events for the 50th year anniversary?
0: So the biggest thing about our 50th anniversary is that we're actually getting a new projector. And so we are upgrading for the first time in 20 years. Our first projector was one of those sort of classical planetaria, which we call an ant projector Mm -hmm. um, in in the biz. (laughs) Uh, And so it looks like you have two... Uh, Star Balls, and that rotates around. That was our first one from Spitz. Mm -hmm. That was there for 30 years, and then we had our Digistar 2, which was there for 20, and now we're installing the Digistar 5. And so we just closed down on Sunday to do that, and Mm -hmm. we will be installing the new system, and as part of that we're going to have a full- one-hour live star talk as our feature show for the public uh, come the fall. That will just show off everything that this new system can do, and it's going to be uh, taking us to the edge of space and <laughs> back to Earth, and it's going to be quite an adventure.
2: Yeah, I saw that you guys were putting in a new projector. So, mm-hmm. what are what are the major changes that we would see because of that?
0: Uh, you are going to see a, a much clearer and crisper and more accurate night sky that we'll be projecting onto our dome. So, currently we don't have any color with the Digistar 2, but the Digistar 5 will present a color accurate night sky. So if I show you a star that's red, you'll actually see it as red in the planetarium. If I point out Mars, it'll look red. If I point out Rigel, for instance, that's a blue star, it'll look blue. So we're going to have a more accurate night sky, but in addition to that, we'll be able to do a lot more Uh, flying through the universe, flying to specific objects and seeing them up close based off of scientific models and scientific data. We'll be able to not only fly to the planets and see them, we'll be able on at least some of the planets fly along their surface and see up close data of wow. of Mars fly through Valles Marineris for instance yeah. which is a canyon on Mars that's as wide as the United States. Wow. But we'll be able to, to show you that up close which is not something we've been able to do before.
2: Well, I guess yeah. I don't need to go to space anymore. I can just go to the planetarium. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um so in uh, with the uh, like new coloring and stuff does it does that mean you guys would be able to like highlight different things and kind of like draw people's attention with color as well?
0: I uh, yeah, so we'll be able to uh, – there's features on it that if we are talking about a particular star, we'll be able to highlight it on the dome yeah. a bit more clearly rather than using our laser pointer. Mm-hmm. We'll still be out there with our laser pointer pointing <laughs> things out because, I mean, laser pointers are fun. But uh, we'll, we'll have new graphics that will let us highlight those things a bit more clearly and, uh, and so on. So. Mm-hmm.
2: And then looking forward to the next 50 years, do mm-hmm. you have any shifting goals for the future or are you just going to keep doing the great work that you guys are currently doing?
0: I want to continue the great work, but as I was saying before, I want to make sure that we're expanding that work in any way that that makes sense and that we can. And that we're really a a venue for education Mm -hmm. in the East Lansing area or the Lansing area beyond. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just continuing what we're doing, but also looking for, for new ways that we can engage the public as well.
2: Awesome. Well, you're listening to Exposure on Impact 89 FM, and we've been talking with Shannon Schmoll, who is the director of the Abrams Planetarium at Michigan State. Thanks so much for being with us. <laughs> You are listening to WDBM, IMPACT 89FM, and this is Exposure. Now you may not see most college students jogging at sunrise unless these students are part of the MSU ROTC program. Last year, Station Manager Gabriela Saldivia sat down with a few ROTC students to learn more about this program and their commitment.
5: I'm Gigi Shade. I am the Battalion Executive Officer, so that's like second in command of all of the students in ROTC. Um, I'm Amanda Dolson, and I'm our battalion's S-5, which basically means that I'm in charge of, like, public relations and stuff that we do within the community and our battalion. Uh, Well, we're in the Army ROTC program, um, and ROTC stands for the Reserve Officers Training Corps. So basically it's just a program that trains uh, students to become Army officers, and after we graduate, we'll be second lieutenants in the Army.
4: Cool. So is that um, pretty popular at Michigan State? Um, our program has
5: about, what, 280 it's people in it? About 180, 180, I think. Yeah, we're pretty okay. close to 200, um, give or take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's a big program. Um.
4: Is that something you start when you're a freshman, or can you start it at any point?
5: There are a few different ways that you can go about becoming an ROTC, actually. um, A lot of times when people start the program as a freshman, it's because they go in with a four-year scholarship. Um, You can obtain a scholarship, like you can compete for it, you can get one for three years or even two years, depending on when you come in, but if you don't start the program as a freshman, the latest you can enter is before your junior year.
4: Okay, interesting. So why did you decide to do ROTC? I mean, uh, Gigi.
5: Um, I decided to do ROTC because of all of the opportunities that would become available to me as an officer. Um, it's a really good place to start a career and I'm hoping that it will have all of the opportunities that I want available to me right um, I think that people can sometimes overlook the opportunities it can open up for you in a regular career like outside of the Army. Um, one of the reasons I originally decided to do it was because I want to use my criminal justice and psychology majors that I'm getting to get um, a job obviously when I'm done being in the Army and having a career with that kind of background in the Army can actually open a lot of doors and help me out with that.
4: So. Yeah. Why do you think other people participate? For the similar reasons or do you think they have others as well?
5: Mostly for the same reasons. Um, they may not be as career-oriented as Amanda's and mine are. Um, Some people just want to be infantry and go hoo but, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, a lot of it is the opportunities available.
4: Yeah. What are some of those opportunities? Could you give me some examples?
5: Um, One of the big reasons that I decided to join was the opportunities to travel. Um, I know that this is going to give me a a ticket basically to so many other places that many people aren't going to be able to go in their lifetime. And I just, I really like to travel and it's going to give me the opportunity to live a lot of different places for like little bits of time. And then I'll be able to kind of go from there and just see where it takes me. Yeah. That's what I like about it. So yeah, I think that's a big factor. Um, I know that one of the opportunities I'm looking forward to is I want to be a doctor so just having the career background in the Army, I think, will give me uh, a foot in the door in the civilian world when I'm ready to transfer over to the civilian world. Like The educational opportunities um, and benefits that you can get from it, I think, are something that she's looking, Definitely. looking for and that a lot of people go in knowing that they can get something that other people wouldn't have an opportunity to get if they didn't do R O T C
4: Coming to MSU, did you decide MSU because of the program, or was it like, oh, I'm going to go to MSU, I'm going to do the program after that? Like, which way did it go?
5: Um, We both have different stories for that. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm from Pennsylvania, so I wanted to get away from home, and I didn't know that I was going to do ROTC when I visited campus for the first time, and I just fell in love with campus when I came out here. Um, So I knew I was going to come here. And then later I decided that I was going to do ROTC. So the fact that MSU had an ROTC program just fit perfectly. Mm -hmm. And I came out here and talked to uh, the recruiter and it just fit. It seemed to fit. So that was my reasoning. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm from Michigan, but... Growing up, I grew up in a U of M fan household, so it was kind of weird that I ended up coming here. I never thought I would, but I ended up loving it. And then my freshman year, second semester, I kind of felt like something was missing. You know, I wanted to do more. I hadn't really found my niche yet. And my parents had actually tried to get me to do ROTC for a really long time, like apply for the scholarship when I was in high school, and I didn't want to do it. And I ended up somehow taking um, a kinesiology class that was general conditioning and I showed up on the first day of second semester, and I didn't know that it was going to be with the ROTC kids doing PT, and I was like, oh, gosh. And so I kind of, after being around them for a while, towards the end of the semester, I came in and talked to them, and I decided I was going to do it, and here I am.
4: <laughs> Did you face some adversity with your decision? Maybe, I mean, you said your parents encouraged you, and maybe not from your parents, but friends or people that you tell them you're in ROTC, and they say, wow, you're you're making this huge commitment. You're saying what you're going to do for eight years of your life after college. Did you face any, not criticism, but kind of skepticism? Um, or on the other hand, I guess you could say, did you face any like r- people really commending you for it and encouraging you?
5: Um, I, get, I get commended every now and then. I mean, when we walk around on campus or if we just happen to be in uniform after class and we need to go to the store for something, We often get our hands shaken, um, even though we haven't necessarily done anything (laughs) as far as service yet. Um, But in high school, anyhow, with my friends that never thought I would be one to join the Army, see me now, and they're like, no, it fits you. Um, I've never really been criticized for it, um, but my family is definitely proud. Right. Right. I grew up in a military, and Army family, so this, it was kind of like, not expected, but I think that they were, they were not surprised at all when I decided to do it, so.
4: Yeah. Do you think ROTC at Michigan State is kind of overlooked? Do people not really, I mean, 200 people on a campus of 40,000 plus students? Like, do you feel, sometimes people ask you questions, or? Oh, all the time. All the time, um.
5: We walk around with tons of equipment on us sometimes, and people just walk up to us asking if we're getting ready to deploy. It's like, not quite. Not really, no. (laughs) Not quite deploying, not yet. (laughs) But, um, yeah, it's definitely something that's overlooked on campus. Um, Nobody really knows that the program is out there and that it's available to anyone that wants to join. Right. Um, I think one thing that is kind of interesting about it is, Um, A lot of times when you come and you're looking to go to Michigan State or a big school like this, people always say, you know, it's a big school, but you can find ways to make it smaller. And I definitely think that that is one thing ROTC has been able to do for me. Um, You spend so much time with the same people. It's kind of its own entity, you know, within the campus. Like, it is a smaller group. Um, It doesn't seem, it doesn't feel small when you're with all those people because we have so many, but compared to the rest of the campus, it is a small group, but people become really close-knit, I think, and that's something that's good about it yeah
4: so um why why don't you tell me what a typical training session is like I'm interested to know that (laughs) (laughs) all right well
5: excuse me we uh we start pretty much every weekday with uh our physical training so it's a workout session and it's an hour from 6 a.m to 7 a.m um and we're all grumpy and angry that we have (laughs) to be there but we do it anyhow um and then we go through just our normal university classes that we have for our majors. Um, and every Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on what year you're in, uh, you have your military science lecture and then your military science lab is always on Tuesdays. So that's where we get all of our training. Yeah, it's, that's a two-hour block of um, instruction that everybody is expected to participate in if you're part of the program. Um, and then once every semester... Um, We have our field training exercises, so we'll go off campus and we'll spend a weekend. And it's more of a more of a real life environment, like I guess you could say, um, where sometimes we sleep outside or we Mm -hmm. all sleep like in barracks and everything. And we just focus more intensively on the training that we do here, just like for longer amounts of time. And then when we go in the spring, we actually work with other schools. So like U of M will be there, Notre Dame comes, Central, Eastern, Western. Is that it? I think so. Yeah. um, They'll all come and work with us, and it gives us an opportunity to, like, broaden our horizons and with, like, our leadership skills that we're working on and to work with other people. It's a really good experience. Um, And then we also have, like, extra things that we do. Um, Something that's coming up, we'll have our Veterans Day events. It's just we have, like, smaller things that we're expected to help with in addition to doing our standard stuff that we all have to do. So.
4: So how hard is it, um, or challenging, I guess is a better word, to balance school with all of your responsibilities with ROTC?
5: Um, sometimes it gets pretty difficult. Uh, there are definitely lags in our ROTC responsibilities and you take those times for what they are and you get to relax, but other times it can be really vigorous, right? Like sometimes it'll just seem like out of nowhere you have so much stuff you have to do, um. But at the same time, I really kind of think it's how much you you want to put into it, you know, is what you're going to get out of it. So if we have extracurricular like, clubs within ROTC that people can participate in, so the people who spend time doing those, they're going to have to put a lot more effort into into it than other people. You know, that that takes up a lot of extra time, or um, depending on what year you are, if you're a freshman or a sophomore, your time commitment is significantly less than if you're a Definitely. junior or a senior um, it just, the workload gets more and more, um, the older you get and the more responsibility that you get within the battalion, because when we're, we're seniors now, like we said, and so our, we're basically responsible for running everything that happens within, I mean, we have, um, they're called our cadre members, the people who are, um, there to help us and guide us with everything, but pretty much everything falls on us to get it done and get our training taken care of. So,
4: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so what it, would you say is your favorite part of being involved? Um, the people, definitely. Like Amanda was
5: saying, we have our own community there. Um, everyone is a genuine person when we're there, um, and we all work together and we support each other, whether it's in ROTC or in school or in our own personal lives. We're always there for each other. Right, I'd agree too.
4: How did you feel when you first received your uniform for the first time? Um, I was pretty proud of myself for putting
5: in the work, like Amanda said, uh, that we have different scholarships available, and I was one of those four-year winners. Um, So I was proud of myself for going through the scholarship process and achieving that, but I'm especially proud of myself when I'm working in the program and I'm faced with a challenge and I have to overcome it, and I do, and that's definitely where the reward is. Right, I agree Um, I definitely, I remember the first time I got all my stuff And coming home and trying to figure out how to put it all together And it was really exciting And the first time I got to wear it all I just felt so cool And I, I don't know, I thought it was really awesome But I definitely agree with you When you finally, um, if something that you haven't been able to do Like you've been working on it I don't know Right now, I'm struggling with land navigation stuff, but as soon as like I can conquer that, I'm gonna feel great. You know, there are different things that are gonna challenge you um, while you're here. You're definitely gonna step out of your comfort zone in so many areas. But like looking back over all the really cool things that I think I've done in college, um, give or take a few, it's all been because of being a part of this. Like this thing that's so much bigger than yourself, and I really think that that's why everybody really appreciates it. And the fact that they're wearing that uniform while they're doing those things, is, it just adds to it. Yeah, knowing that we're going somewhere after this, too, helps. right?
4: Are you nervous? Are you anxious that there's something, not looming, I would say would maybe be the wrong word, but like you said, there's something after this. Not a lot of people have that lined up for them after college. Right.
5: Um I definitely, I think, um, right now, our, the seniors in our program, we're kind of all really anxious and excited because we're supposed to find out in November um, like if we got active duty, if, we're, if it's going to be our full-time job, and what our job is going to be in the Army when we graduate and commission as officers. And I think we're all just kind of like, oh, it's there. It's coming. And I, I think everybody is just excited. And I know I'm really excited to see where I'm going to be a year from now because I don't know. And I know a lot of people are like that. But Definitely. I think that... That's actually one of the reasons that I like it so much is because I know that no matter what I'm going to have a job and I'm going to have somewhere I'm going to have to go but at the same time I kind of like not knowing right now where it's going to be. I don't know. It's like this weird thing I have going on right now with myself. It
4: just <laughs> sounds like a pretty normal yeah, college student yeah, right. feeling though.
5: They, yeah, definitely. Yeah, just I know cuz I know a lot of my friends are a lot more certain or some even like, really less certain about like what they're going to be doing but I think that I'm happy about it the way it is right now so yeah signing the paperwork to become part of the program and committing to what our my commitment is eight years so wow. it, it was a big deal I mean coming to college as a freshman what 18 years old and knowing that I'm gonna have something to do once I graduate mm-hmm. it was a big deal but it's it was definitely a really good choice I'm I'm glad I did it It's a big commitment, but if you feel like you're in it for the right reasons, then I think that that's the way you're supposed to feel. I mean, you'll know that you made the right choice.
4: Yeah. Um, When you said you're struggling with land navigation, what is is that?
5: (laughs) Um, Can you give me a description of what
4: land navigation is? I will tell you what.
5: Land navigation is um, basically you're given a map and a compass and a protractor. So you plot your point, you're given a, it's called a lane strip, and it has, depending if you're doing it during the day or during, uh, when it's dark, um, you have eight points and you plot them on your map. The points that you're given are noted by numbers and it's longitude and latitude numbers that you have to plot on the map. Right. And then your goal is to go out and find each of these points. Wow. Mm-hmm using just 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 by the numbers so you've got your protractor which is a tool that is specialized for land navigation that helps you find these points on the map so that you can get yourself to them on the actual land right using a protractor you use it first to plot the points like she said but then it can tell you the distance or um the degree at which you need to set your compass to to get to that point so yeah um Mostly, my problem is doing it at night. I have bad <laughs> night vision, night. and it just nightland nav is always difficult. It's hard.
4: So you go out and apply this like to things in the Lansing East Lansing area. We
5: have um, we we have a land navigation course um, okay. in Lot Woodland. Um, it's one of the agricultural oh, squares wow. on campus. Yeah, I had it's no idea. College Road. Yeah, that's really um, cool. All of the ag- agricultural land we have. Uh, we have access to one of the biggest lots, and they work with us a lot to let us use that land right. and go out and train. Yeah, it's nice. We're very thankful yeah, for that. Yeah, and we're especially very lucky, too, compared to a lot of other ROTC programs, especially yeah, like the ones have, in big cities who don't have access to doing stuff like that. So Yeah, U of M only gets to do land nav maybe twice a year, and we're out doing land nav All seven, time. eight times a semester. <laughs> All the time. So it's... We, we really get a lot of training in that area, and it helps us out later in life.
4: So how is it being uh, a woman in the ROTC program? I'm not sure if this is maybe a stereotypical <laughs> question that you might get. But
5: no, it's a good question. No, it's definitely a good question. Um, sometimes you notice it. Sometimes you don't. Um, <laughs> I agree with that. that there's only... Um, I think that um, I've noticed that we're getting a lot more girls. There's a lot of girls who are younger than we are. But um, in our class right now, the seniors, we only have five five because one of the girls is studying abroad for the semester. But it can be it can be frustrating sometimes. But for the most part, I think that everybody wants you to do well and they want to see you succeed and they're willing to help you and not or, like, what I'm looking for. Um, They're not out to get you, you know, because you're a female. Um, yeah. the, the, <laughs> Go ahead. The guys form their own cliques, this and they true. all get along so much better with one another than they get along with the girls, because it's a completely different dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the girls are in it for the nursing program, or, like, like I am a pre-med major. Um, so... It's a completely different dynamic there than the guys who want to go to be in the infantry. But they're willing to teach you, and as long as you're willing to learn, it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. They respect you being there, and um, you just have to show that you're there for the same thing they are, to become an officer and to be in the Army. Yeah, to be a good leader.
4: So my last question, um, how has being in ROTC shaped you as a person and maybe also as a student?
5: As a student, definitely time management. Um, I felt like in high school, and then I didn't do RTC my freshman year, but um, the way I managed my time and the way I studied and took care of everything else that I needed to do in my life was a lot different. Um, it's given me a sense of focus, I would say, and it definitely has taught me more so how to set and achieve my goals that I have for myself. Um, I think it goes back to saying that I've done a lot of really cool things since I've been here mm-hmm. um, because of RTC, and a lot of them have required me to push myself and make myself better, and I really like that. And I definitely think that it's helped me to appreciate the little things in life that people take for granted that um, sometimes we don't get to appreciate. So Like sleep. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely sleep. <laughs> so, um, it's... It's taught me to work harder for the things that I want, harder than I ever thought right. I would have had to work. Right. Um, but you know that teaches you something about yourself, mm-hmm. and I've I've learned a lot just about myself just because of ROTC.
0: You're
2: listening to
3: Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
2: Monday nights from 8 till 10, The Asian Invasion brings you the music from The Rising Sun. We'll bring you the latest pop, indie, rock, and electro from Korea, Japan, and China. Only
0: on Impact 89FM.
2: An ordinary day. An ordinary family's living room filled with an ordinary bunch of kids. And they were doing nothing. When suddenly...
4: That's a personal foul. Inactive activity on
5: a sunny day. Coming to the rescue was NFL running back Reggie Bush. Let's play. And play they did. There was running and jumping and laziness was crushed. Hey kids,
2: don't get a lazy penalty. Go online to smallstep.gov for fun playtime ideas. So you can be a player too. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council.
6: Attention shoppers,
0: if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department. Department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have a good day.
2: Small Step
1: number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov.
0: A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council.
2: Now back to Impact
3: Exposure.
2: You're listening to Impact 89 FM. This is Exposure, and I'm your host, Stephen Rich. Big Brothers Big Sisters has been working for over a century to provide mentorship and support for young boys and girls across the nation. And here in Lansing, they provide a range of supportive services for kids. Capital Region Program Director Kelly Young called in to tell us about their work.
6: Thank you for having me. I started with Big Brothers Big Sisters 11 years ago, actually, and. Sort of stumbled into it after undergrad and began as a case manager and have just grown with the organization after falling in love with the mission of the work.
2: Mm -hmm. And have you ever personally been a big sister or had a big
6: sis? Not formally through the program, I have done some mentoring unofficially. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, just to kind of um, get a better understanding, I mean, obviously, everyone, or most people know about Big Brothers Big Sisters, but I, I'm I'm sure that not many people have had the opportunity to have a a mentor like this. So, just to kind of um, understand a little bit about the experience, can you tell us about what what a tip, typical big brotherhood or big sisterhood is like?
6: Absolutely. The kids that we serve are those that would be considered um, those who face adversity in life. So they'd benefit from the additional support of an adult role model. They're kids often from single-parent, low-income households, but they're also kids that um, are at risk of not achieving their full potential. So bringing a mentor into their life, somebody that can share life experiences with them, just be there to listen, provide some guidance and support, and have some fun together makes a tremendous impact in their lives. So we ask mentors to commit to spending two to four time hours together with a little each month mm-hmm. for at least a year. And the focus is really on developing a friendship. And there are lifelong outcomes that result from that time together.
2: Mm-hmm. So... As I understand it it is to help the child grow, are there any um, kind of major goals along the way, or is it just kind of having that person um, that the child can rely on and has a relationship with?
6: That's a good question. I should add we serve youth between the ages of 5 and 18 or Mm -hmm. when they graduate from high school. And with each individual match relationship, we establish goals specific to that youth. And we actually work with the parent, volunteer, and the child to come up with some goals together, some things they'd like to work on over the course of the first year. And then if the relationship continues, we update those goals. And so... Um, I know of one little in particular who his big brother uh, helped him get engaged to play football at school, and now they're starting to talk about college together. Um, He actually emigrated to the United States from Liberia and would like to become a doctor and go back to his homeland and help children, and so... Um, His big brothers, just they're researching scholarships and colleges, and um, he's just helping him work towards making that dream a reality.
2: Mm -hmm. And can you tell us about any other experience of seeing uh, some some big impact on these these kids?
6: Absolutely. I can think of, because I've been here for 11 years, I've been very fortunate to watch youth grow through the program. And so, um, you know, high school graduation can be a pretty big feat for some of these kids. And so just the additional support, talking to them about um, pursuing their dreams and the importance of education. And so I know of another young man who recently graduated from high school and has gone on um, to college and um, would like to become an EMT ultimately. Mm-hmm. And we host a graduation celebration for littles each year who graduate from high school, and oh. so there are a number of stories uh, where they achieve things they thought they never thought possible, and go on to pursue their dreams. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and then in some ways you get kids who I can think at a younger age were really shy, never talked, and a big accomplishment for them is just being able to hold a conversation with an adult and have more confidence in their lives. Mm.
2: And have you ever, or have you been able to see uh, kids in the program grow into big brothers or big sisters themselves?
6: We have had volunteers come to us who say that they were a little when Mm. they were younger. Um, And we also have surveyed adults who were once littles, and 64% indicated that they volunteer in their community. So. These kids go from being considered at risk to contributing members to their community. It's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, that is really cool. And so how do you guys uh, match a mentor with a child? How does that process
6: start? I love telling people that we're professional matchmakers, (laughs) and it's based on personality and interest, really. We spend time with the volunteers as well as the families to get to know them, what they're expecting from the experience, what they're comfortable with. And we put a lot of thought and time into Pairing bigs and littles together and then we also provide professional support through the life of the relationship So we're there. We don't just pair them up and send them off and wish them well Uh, We're talking every month to see how things are going how we might be able to help Mm -hmm. and we also um, host monthly Activities that are low or no cost for the bigs and littles to do as a group together, Mm -hmm. which really helps support the relationship
2: so it sounds like they, they're they in charge of the relationship themselves, but you guys are helping guide them and make sure that it's going well?
6: Absolutely, mm-hmm. right.
2: And then moving into the Capital um, Region area itself, how many kids do you guys have involved in programs in the area?
6: This year we will serve about 450 children in the Capital Region.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. And so what sort of things are you guys working on to enhance the program and help uh, build these better relationships between the mentors and kids?
6: That's a great question. We are involved with the Capital Area College Access Network. What we want to do is be very well connected in the community and knowledgeable of other additional resources and supports to families and youth and get them connected in that way as well, Uh, enhancing our training for our mentors so that they feel really certain in what their role is. Ultimately, we would like to be able to serve more youth. We've got over 200 kids on our waiting list. Mm -hmm. Boys tend to wait at least two years for a big brother. So our greatest need is for male volunteers.
2: Mm. And are there any um, events this summer that we can look to uh, help promote you guys and support you guys in the area?
6: That's also a great question. This evening (laughs) is our annual family picnic at Hawk Island, and we'll have over 200 in attendance for that. Oh, we're, very cool. Yeah. We're planning uh, college months later this year, and we'll have information going out about that, which I can share dates, but college tours, um, and then we'll host our big night celebration in the fall as well.
2: Mm, very cool. Well, we'll keep an eye out for you guys. And just to, before we go, um, what do you think the, is the best support that a big brother or big sister can provide for their for their little?
6: I would say just being there for them. It's really that simple. Um, What kids say that they really appreciate is having somebody that's there as a friend and that's there to listen to them. Uh, A lot of the youth in our program don't have that luxury in their lives, and it makes a huge difference.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Kelly. We've been talking with uh, Kelly Young, who's the program director for the Michigan Capital Region of Big Brothers Big Sisters. And for more information, you can log on um, to their website, which is uh, www.bbbsmcr.org. Thank you so much, Kelly.
6: Thank you very much.
2: to exposure right here on impact 89 fm and before we meet our special guest for the evening i want to take a step back to an interview that past exposure host abby newton did looking at what it's like to be a zookeeper
7: does your typical day entail
3: it's a lot of cleaning and feeding um but we also try to spend time doing training and enrichment with the animals and stuff but i mean most of it you know there's a lot of cleaning of course involved and they eat like Some animals eat once a day, some have to eat, like, three times a day, so it varies.
7: And what do you mean when you say training and enrichment?
3: Um, Enrichment, well, it's just to kind of stimulate the animal, give them something to do so they're, you know, just to get them active. Um, So we'll do, like, sometimes live food enrichment. Sometimes, like, like, right now in the summer we do, like, a lot of sickles, so a lot of, like, frozen treats and stuff that they have to manipulate and try to get, like, the fish out of it. Um, basically just to give them something to do, so they're not bored. Uh, training, um, we try to do a lot of training, especially with our animals, where they can't just go in and grab, um, so, like, training with the otters, you know, getting them to, like, for example, coming into this little PVC tube here, and being able to, like, you know, if you have to poke them, or give them vaccinations and injections, and a lot of the training is, is directed towards, like, uh, veterinary stuff, like help out our vet staff, or, um... Um, like shifting, so you can get the animal to easily shift so you can safely go into the cage, you know, that they're not in. And But in order to do that, you got to train them, you got to work with them to get them to do all that stuff. So it makes your life easier, the vet's life easier, and mm. everybody's happy. <laughs> and they like it too because they get rewarded. <laughs> I'm sure the sickles sound good. <laughs> yeah.
7: What's the biggest challenge of being a zookeeper?
3: Um, the biggest challenge of being a zookeeper is I think it's the paranoia of making sure you're doing everything right that you can for the animal, you know, making sure you're locking your locks because, you know, I'm you know, you check a lock and you're like, did I just lock that lock? Wait, let me check it. Wait, did I just lock that lock? Let me check it again. (laughs) Like, you you, just being over, like, OCD and you know, making sure your locks are locked and challenging, like well, that can go either way because, you know, even with the animals, like, sometimes animals just don't do what you want them to do. It really makes your life a little bit difficult, <laughs> and you can't make them. So like a rhino, what are you going to do, like push him to the other side of the cage? No, you've got to wait till he shifts. You can't do anything about it. So that's definitely a challenge, um, and that's why training is very important. Um, uh, I'm losing my thought now. <laughs>
7: What's your favorite part of being a zookeeper?
3: My favorite part, well, I do really enjoy working with the animals. Um, I mean you get to do things that people just don't on an everyday basis don't get to do which is you know to, who gets to feed a rhino uh-huh. like nobody like <laughs> only if you get some special behind the scenes tour or whatever like you get to, so there's a lot of there's just a lot of cool things like I never thought like when we hand raised our tiger cubs like I got to help in bottle feeding them and you know with our... Baby otter here I got to help I got to help with that like that's just it's just amazing so
7: how do you feed a rhino
3: How do you feed a rhino well normally they they'll ship them they put their food and ship them but they do use like produce and stuff they'll cut up produce and hand feed them for you know giving them treats for you know actually just they have that prehensile lip and they'll just grab it right from your hand so um, you actually you can actually hand feed a rhino.
7: And when you have a new animal, either from a different zoo or from the wild, or you have, you know, a new baby, how do you adapt them to the life in a zoo?
3: Um, well, let's see. A new animal from the wild, well, I mean, we do our best to make them comfortable. Um, Sometimes you can tell, like, if something's, like, Frightening it, and you can get like that object out of there. Um, usually, it's a slow process. We'll start them by themselves, and then like if it's going to end up with another animal, then we might introduce them to like a howdy situation. And and usually, um, most animals adapt really well. We've had a few exceptions where like our one tiger, she's just she was just never happy here. So she's in another zoo, and she's as happy as can be there.
7: <laughs> How do you know when an animal's happy?
3: Um um they're not like hiding like in the back corner of their their pen and like and like if it's unhappy it might sit there depending on what type of animal it is it will growl at you or not want to come up and like if you hand feed it like take a treat from your hand or anything like that and you can tell like I mean, just like when a person gets depressed the animal gets depressed mm-hmm. too and you can you can just see that and that's a part of being a zookeeper like you need to be able to know, you know that animal so i can tell like for example, the, I work with the wolves, and, like, that wolf's kind of off today. Like, she just doesn't seem right. Like, she's not, she's feeling a little under the weather. Like, you can just tell when they're not, they're not right.
7: And how do you build that animal-human connection?
3: Um, usually, you know, feeding them. You know, they associate you with their food. Um training um, you build that bond when you work with that animal you know' it's often whether it 's every day or every other day um, they seem to come up and recognize you uh, uh if it 's an animal that was born here, like just working with it from birth, you build that bond then um, i, I can 't think of anything else <laughs> <laughs>
7: Have you ever been scared at all i mean you're you're working with wolves and rhinos. Have you ever been fearful
3: <laughs> um I mean, I like to think of myself as being safe, <laughs> so, you know, I make sure my locks are locked, and, you know, um, I'm, I'm not scared working with any of the animals, I'm not scared of the rhino, um, let's see, because, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm doing my job, I'm doing everything right. Um, I mean, I like, guess the scary part, like storms, like treat, we've had limbs come down on fence lines, and that would be the scary aspect of it, but um, never, like, I've never put myself in a dangerous position or anything like that, but you have to be careful because you can easily do that, too. So that would be the potential scary part of it, but I'm not scared of working with these animals because it's not like I'm going to stick my hand in with the wolf and have her bite my hand off. It's like, it's No, so, you know, it's, 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 there's something, some type of barrier or something in between you and if it's a dangerous animal like the rhinos. Yes, you could, they, they actually hand-feed them, but they're not in there hand-feeding them. So there's still that, those bars protecting you from them and this and that. Okay. And what,
7: kind of, what animals do you have here at the Potter Pot Zoo, if you could just list them off?
3: We <laughs> have quite a few. Um, well, let's see. We have our education animals. So there's a bunch of random like animals up there that are docents or our volunteers that will hold, which would be um, ferrets, chinchilla, we have our doves, kestrel, um, opossums, bearded dragon, skink, uh, parrots, um, we have our otters, we have five otters right now, we have our um, two wolves, we have our two ostrich, um, which we'll be getting bison soon with them, So that'd be, well not with them, but in that exhibit they're in right now. Um, camels, llamas, we have a ride camels right now. We have tigers, lions, mandrills, lemurs, uh, red panda, donkeys, um, rhinos, uh, battered foxes are one of our newer animals. Uh, mongooses, another new animal we have. Uh, porcupine, uh, meerkats, plus, like all the different animals in the bird and reptile house. Yeah.
7: <laughs> now, what has been the most memorable or odd or fun, you know, just weird experience you've had as a zookeeper? Just one of those stories you tell your family around the dinner table. Um, Memorable,
3: uh, fun. Well, memorable definitely would be um, uh, this last time we had the baby tiger cubs they ended up doing the camera in their where we had them at in the clinic and people could log on and actually watch you do a tiger cub feeding so i I was able to tell my mom hey if you log in at this time i'm going to be feeding the baby tiger cubs like so that was really cool and something memorable for my family i mean there's i mean animals they're you know like people they do funny stuff like sometimes you're just like a silly little animal right there um, like, penguins, like, they they have very individual personalities. And I, I one story with them is I told um, the one other keeper I work with that they were stealing the broom. And so he, he was like, no, no, they're not stealing the broom. Because I'd always come in and find it on the ground in the morning, and I know I put my tools away. And then the one day I came in, the one had the, the bristles uh on the bottom of the broom, and it was dragging it up outside the exhibit. So, like, you know, animals are funny and they do, they're curious and they do crazy things. And, but I mean, I always tell that story to everybody when I do like my penguin talks and stuff, just because it's just something memorable. <laughs> so, my job basically is to make sure everybody's healthy and be able to tell right away, like, if something's not right with that animal and to make sure I notify the proper people, like the vet staff. I'm like. Hey, this animal's not looking right, and so it's kind of hard because I I, I have to like talk to them, yeah. but they don't talk back to me, and that's where I can understand. <laughs> so I need to, I'm you know I'm their I'm their words for them. So I have to know like exactly. I need to know what they're feeling, you know, because I can tell the vet staff. Hey, this animal's not feeling right. because The way he's acting it looks like he's telling me. <laughs> so.
6: Like You're listening to Exposure
2: on Impact 89 FM, and I'm your host, Stephen Rich. Summer allows time for students to explore their interests, and while some students may have hobbies that include basketball or skateboarding, MSU student Alex Moon has a slightly different interest snakes. Him and a few of his friends came into the studio to discuss how he developed this hobby. <laughs> Don't choke my mic. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be way more challenging than I thought it would be. Oh! All right. How do I get him off the microphone? Dude, come on. No, stay off my laptop. I've never been right.
1: with a snake in my hand before. You know how much fun that is? You have one <laughs> hand on the wheel like, yep. Yeah, don't try to climb around. Don't try to go <laughs> into the seat. Don't.
2: Oh, my gosh. This is hysterical. All right. You're listening to Exposure on Impact 89 FM. Right now, I'm handling a snake while I'm interviewing. So if I sound a little flustered, it's because there's a killer wrapped around me. But anyways, we're talking with Alex Moon, who is an MSU student, correct, or did you graduate? I'm an MSU student. Awesome. And he is a snake enthusiast. And how I met Alex was one late night, I saw him standing in front of a 7-Eleven with a snake around his neck, which isn't exactly what I'd call common occurrences in East Lansing. You don't often see mysterious snake men at 7-Eleven at 2 in the morning. So I decided that we had to get him on the radio to talk about snakes. So just to start things off, how did you first They'll develop a passion for snakes. Where did that come from?
1: I, I love all animals. Snakes is it, actually my cousin talking me into it. He had a ball python project. He wanted me to get into it with him, and uh, we didn't want to compete and step on each other's toes, so we got different species. And I really like jungle carpets. <laughs> Beautiful snakes. Jungle carpet pythons. And
2: that's what these are, right?
1: Jungle carpet pythons, yeah. All right.
2: So just for our listeners, could you describe what these snakes look like? You said they're jungle pythons? Jungle carpet pythons. Got it. So they're... um.
1: Black, yellow, and they, they range in color. Like the one
2: that my friend here is holding, it's black little, and white. Mm-hmm. A little bit more brown than yours or a little bit darker yeah. than the one that you have. We both have snakes draped around our necks, if I haven't said that enough, because I'm terrified. <laughs> <laughs> the snake I'm holding, my girl Victoria,
1: she's very bright yellow and black, and mm-hmm. um, she's my baby.
2: And this one's name is? Nagaina. Nagaina. And Nagaina is moving everywhere, trying to crawl on my mic, on my computer. All I really want you to do is be a scarf right now. There we go. So when did you – how long ago did you get these? I've had them for a few months, and I also
1: have a male I left at home because he's really nippy because he's still young. His name uh-huh. is Dita. And that's also a
2: jungle carpet carpet? Yep. Well, very cool. Well, um, just to kind of understand more about jungle uh, carpet pythons, which I feel like this should have been my first question before I wrapped a snake around myself, but they're not venomous, are they? Um. Do you want me to tell you what you want to hear, or do you want to hear the truth? Well, I guess give it to me straight. No, they're not venomous. <laughs> All right, good. Well, let's hear a little bit more about the breed. Why did you pick... Uh, you said you you like jungle carpet pythons. What attracted you to this kind of snake? The color and the size. Like, for example,
1: um, this is a particular subspecies of carpet python, but they don't get much bigger than six feet. But, like, coastal carpets, for example, can get up to 12. These stay relatively smaller. They have bright coloration. And, um... They're just all around great snakes. They're not exactly common, but they're not hard to handle or care for either. Mm-hmm. They don't. I mean,
2: I'm I'm by no means a snake handler, and so I'm kind of just trying to move it, and it doesn't seem to be that upset with me. So they seem pretty tame as well. So, um, and so how how big can a snake like this get? Are these gonna like fully grown or? Yeah, they shouldn't get much more than six feet.
1: The thing is, it's you never know if they're actually pure jungle carpets because there's a okay. lot of hybridization between the subspecies. So if it had some coastal blood in it, it could get six, it could be like seven <laughs> or eight feet, and you'd be like, "Oh, well, I found out something about the snake that
2: I didn't know. It's not fully a jungle carpet, you know." <laughs> and how big of like a tank do you have to have to keep a snake this size? Because you have three of them, I imagine you have a pretty big I space for them.
1: I got two fifty-five gallon aquariums in my bedroom for these guys, and Dita's still young, so he's in a thirty-gallon in our living
2: room. Wow. So you have a lot of space for snakes in your house. I hope you have a big apartment, or is it just mostly snakes? My and then... bedroom has those 255s in it. I make it work. Wow. <laughs> so you said you and your cousin originally started getting snakes, and you both just at the same time
1: were like. He awesome got his snakes. operation going. He wanted to breed ball pythons, and he had his first successful clutch last year. He got babies, and um, I went into carpets, and I'd hope to get babies in the future if I get a breeding size male or Dita matures.
2: That is. How. I mean, breeding snakes. I, I, it's such an odd hobby. That's I think it's so great. Like, what, Just does is it make a lot of money, or is it just for the fun? For the fun. I of mean, it's, it's both. Mm-hmm. And what kind of things do these snakes eat? Are they? Do you have to like bring them live rats and stuff, or what do you what do you feed them? Well, I mean, if I catch a small child playing in my yard,
1: <laughs> no. no, 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 I'm kidding you're about set for that. Weeks. <laughs> rats, mice, depending. Jungle carpets actually can be very adverse to taking rats at first. But I do frozen thawed, mm-hmm. and um, Nagaina tends to prefer smaller rats, more of them, and she'll take mice. Victoria will eat huge ones.
2: <laughs> this snake is so active right now. I'm really trying to pay attention, but this thing is all over me. Oh, my gosh. So, wait, did you get him here in Lansing then?
1: No, I got one to rescue. Oh. I got her off of some owner of Craigslist like, wow. trying to sell their snake. And um, she had some wounds on her from some airs in her enclosure. Like, there's some, I think like, I loose screws. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, on top of her back, you can see, like, a scar mm-hmm. where she scratched up trying to get out. And Victoria got off a breeder out of Flint, met him in Owasso. <laughs> My cousin housed her for a while, and then I took her off, took her
2: off his hands, so. <laughs> and so, I mean, one of the obvious questions is, like, Everyone loves a good pet, but when you see, like, a normal good pet, you see, like, you know, a cat, a dog. If someone's weird, maybe they'll have a ferret or something. But why snakes? I keep coming back to that. Why snakes? What do you like so much about them? The thing about snakes
1: is they're great press tests. I mean, how a girl reacts to them is like, is this girl girlfriend material? Or is like, get out of my house? And it's a great filter. And you walk around the street with it
2: like you found me. And it filters right off the bat when you meet them. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... It's definitely a good conversation starter, and actually, it's funny you mentioned girls because one of my questions was, "How good are snakes at attracting the ladies? Have you ever gotten a phone number from?" I've your gotten
1: snakes? more than one night. <laughs> I mean, I've had mixed. I have mixed results. I mean, some ladies will run to the other side of the street. Some ladies like wide-eyed, just like, "Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my
2: god!" <laughs> This guy loves underneath our, our studio box. I think it's the dark. I don't know if it's just because it's dark under there, but he keeps going it's, for it's it. It's a
1: spot where it can conceal itself. It's oh, it's gosh. like a little cave. So it's like, yep, what? I'm going to try to hide from you now. That's another thing, too. They're not like dogs where they're going to want to cuddle you. They see you as a threat, and they're going to want to try to hide from you. Like We can admire their beauty, appreciate their beauty, but... Keep in mind, if you want a cuddly pet, they're not really ones to
2: comply with that. Well, good to keep in mind. And so, if you were to, if anyone was interested in uh, starting to, you know, get into snake ownership or snake breeding, is it best to just go to a pet store and learn about it that way, or what's the best way to start start your research on? If on you're looking about snakes? to buy a snake, the best way to pay too much is to go to a pet
1: store because you mm-hmm. have retail markup. Find breeders; they know how to take care of them better. Or, you know, you can check out my stuff because, like I said, me and my cousin are in this.
2: And do you guys have, like, a Facebook or anything that people can reach out to you guys?
1: Um, I have Facebook, Vincent Moon. I have an Instagram, Lunar underscore Jungle. Feel free to check those out.
2: Awesome. Well, we'll definitely put on the Impact website a way to get in contact with you if someone, if anyone's interested in starting their snake hobby, well, Thank you so much for being in the studio. We're ta- we've been talking with Alex Moon as well as Nagita, Nagaina, Nagaina, and Victor. Victoria. Okay. The snakes in the studios. You're listening to Ex- Exposure on Impact 89 FM. Thanks again, Alex. No problem. <laughs> this was the most stressful interview I've ever done. Just. so... <laughs> And if you want to see pictures of the snakes, we're going to include a link to our Instagram um, on our website, which is impact89fm.org. Just go to talk and click on exposure and you'll find it there. Special thanks to Station Manager Gabriela Saldivia and General Manager Ed Glazer, as well as all our staff here at Impact 89FM. Tonight's show and all other exposure shows can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I'm Stephen Rich, and you've been listening to Impact Exposure 89FM.